hidden behind closed doors. This is Beer and Be Movies. I'm Jason. And I'm Michael. Jason, what movie are we talking about today? Today we're going to discuss 1952's film noir, Kansas City Confidential. Michael, what are we drinking? We're drinking a personal favorite, Tank 7 American Saison from Boulevard Brewing out of Kansas City. Excellent. Pretty Cheers. easy Pretty easy pick on this one. Absolutely. It's a great beer. Smell that's really floral Four. on the nose. Crisp. You got fruit up front. It finishes that classic Saison peppery. That's what you point out. It has a, a distinct peppery taste to it. Yeah. It's good. And no pepper involved. It's all in the brewing process. So actually, if you go on their website, they, they talk about it's a perfect food pairing beer. And they even go to uh, several chefs, I believe maybe seven, because Tank 7, and ask them, what would you pair with this? I think it's a good beer just for drinking, hanging out. You can just tell by the complexity what's going on here that it's it's fantastic with food, too. And 8.5 8. ABV. Doesn't taste it, does it? No, it does not. No, it's a sneaky little bugger. And did you come across them visiting out in that area or no boulevard has been around for a long time i've known them been familiar with their stuff i mean when i was you know back in the midwest uh it's it's readily available out here so they've they've got a wide distribution i've just been a big fan they do a ton of good beers this is one of my favorites of theirs it goes well with the movie not just because of kansas city but this is kind of a film noir that's like got a lot going on and this beer has a lot going on it does and you chose this movie. I did. I saw this again. This is, I think, one of the uh, back back in college studying film, and I took classes specifically about film noir because I'm such a huge fan. This is one that came up. It's sort of a classic, not as big as like the Maltese Falcon, but Quentin Tarantino was a huge fan of this movie. And there's something in this where the where these guys do a crime and they all wear masks, so they don't know who each person is. Tarantino used that in Reservoir Dogs where the group didn't know anyone's names. You were identified by a color, makes it harder to squeal. If you don't know who I am, I don't know who you are, there's only so much I can tell the cops. Which is cool, but at the same time, when you go back to this time, cops are going to beat the crap out of you all night long (laughs) thinking you're lying to them. So if you you don't know anything, it's such a drag to think that you're just going to get beat up all night. And I watched it on YouTube because this movie has lapsed into the public domain. Always fascinating how that this is considered a, a classic of the genre, and it's in the public domain. I own it. I watched it that way, which and, is always kind of fun. And it's clearly a B movie because, as you pointed out, it's a film noir, not a huge budget. It has Jack Elam. Jack, you know, and I mean, I love Jack Elam. We grew, we both grew up. I think you said Cannibal Run. I, I did. Was, I was thinking of him. He's a Western guy, and he has he has a great small role in Once Upon a Time in the West, Sergio Leone's yep. film. You'll know he's sort of got the fish eyes, the wandering eye thing going on. He, yeah. just, he, can, he can either look comical or completely terrifying. He has on one side his eyes really off kilter. And exactly, like when I saw this, I'm like, oh my gosh. He played Dr. Nicholas Van Helsing in the Cannibal Run movies. And he was always doping himself up in the movies. And the same thing. In Westerns, he just kind of played a heavy a lot of the time. I think we need to stop and say... Spoiler alert. Yes, from henceforth, we will be telling you what happens in this movie. So, yeah, in our analysis of the movie and talking about specific items, you will learn the complete movie. So, if you're not prepared, stop us, go watch the movie, and then come back. Um, it also had Preston Foster, which was confusing because he plays a character named Tim Foster. There was also, of course, Lee Van Cleef playing Tony Romano. Another another uh, Western guy. Growing up, for me, the Spaghetti Westerns and Escape from New York. Because of this time period, Lee Van Cleef, Jack Elam. Can't forget Neville Brand. Neville Brand. Neville Brand is an intimidating looking fella. He was yeah. almost like the Vinnie Jones of that time. Where it's just his face is, is somebody... You would look over and you go, oh, I'm not even making eye contact with that guy. Because yeah. he looks like he just wants to beat everything up. And then John Payne, it's because of that time period, all four of them served in World War II. And I always find it interesting when you look at this period, like all these men fought in World War II. The director was Phil Carlson, who was relegated to B-movies. In the 60s, he made a couple of those Matt Helm movies where Dean Martin played a spy, a takeoff of 
kind of the James Bond, both um, Silencers and Wrecking Crew. And his big hit where he made a lot of his money was Walking Tall in 73. He also directed Ben, the rap movie, in in 72. But you have some really big character actors. When I think of Neville Brand, I remember him from the 80s movies because him and another character actor from the period, Aldo Ray, when, when you and Cameron Mitchell, when you got to the 80s, those guys seemed to show up in a lot of like just B horror movies. See, and they, those were the draws like Aldo Ray, Neville Bray, and Cameron Mitchell were our parents' generations remember those names. So like, oh, maybe we'll check that movie out. But they're like, they're B like horror movies. See, I think of uh, Neville, Neville Brand, I often think of Eaten Alive, <laughs> Toby Hooper's follow up to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He plays a, a psycho who runs a, a hotel. And he hates people, which is bad bad business to get into. But he keeps, an, I think, an African crocodile. He's in the swamps, so there's probably alligators. And he keeps African crocodile. And when people come there, he feeds them to his crocodile. It's a completely insane movie. If you haven't seen it, mid to late 70s, it is bat crap insane. Okay, so but, I have to throw this out this other Neville Brand movie, 1985's Evil of the Night, where him and Aldo Ray play their auto mechanics but they're killing of course high school students who are hardly wearing clothes at all all the time and bringing them to a hospital that might be an alien invasion place that's actually also starring ginger from gilligan's island so let's get into it this is a caper film we get an opening with little some titles saying stuff it's a little dragnet even the the sound of the music has a little dragnetty vibe but this is definitely not taken from a cop's perspective which gives it some noir bona fides and you get this mr big fellow who's in a home who's in a room and he's watching down towards a bank the southwest bank and he's keeping tabs on things he's watching cars pull up he sees a florist truck pull up because there's a florist next door to the the bank Watches a guy get out, then all of a sudden, what would today be an armored car, pulls up and these guys get out with bags of cash. And they go into the bank. So he sits and he's checking things off. He's making making notes. So he's been watching for a few days, watching, it's check the time. He's noting on his watch the time. This is happening. This has been happening every day. The same thing happens. So he's watching for this reason. One of the things I get a kick out of is when the guards come out of the bank, they're holding pistols. Like holding them out, pistols at the pistols ready. Pistols drawn. Yeah. Nowadays, they you know you don't pull your gun unless you're shooting it. That was just funny. So Mr. Biggs making notes of this, and then he comes out with a list. The criminals that I know, but I was going to point out one item. It's a very nice map they has, and he's ticking and tying all these times. I just he only has five check marks. This is the fifth day that he's been keeping track. I mean, how long are you supposed <laughs> to watch? I would just think for you know to get a, a really good statistical sample, he might want to do it See, longer. I knew you were going to do that. Five I knew days. you were going to do it. I, but, I knew you couldn't help it. You couldn't help it. You couldn't help it. But also, it's supposed to be Kansas City and IMDb and Wikipedia and Turner Classics. A bunch of sites point out that. Besides some exterior shots, the flyover, it's not Kansas City. Because every time they kind of turn slightly where that bank and, and floral shop, there's a mountain in the background. It's on a back lot somewhere here oh, in yeah. Los Angeles. That's the beauty of the Los Angeles area. Exactly. As they would shoot everything here, location shooting, because we go to Mexico later. Yeah, <laughs> we're that's not, Catalina. We're not, <laughs> we're not in Mexico. Anyways, he's, he's got this list of, of guys. He opens his little book, and Pete Harris. Pete is Jack Elam. Degenerate and a, gambler. And a degenerate <laughs> smoker. He's in a room in a flop house, it looks like. There's a pile of smokes and an ashtray. He picks one out and lights the butt of it. That's hardcore smoking. He's throwing dice on the bed. And all of a sudden the phone rings and he ain't expecting no calls because he, he kind of freaks out, walks over, answers the phone. Mr. Big says, what's up? And he, and he hangs up on him. Says, you got the wrong number. Mr. Big calls back. He does a great job of just looking like... I, I said he looks like a cat in a room full of rocking chairs. Yeah. Constantly. This guy's super nervous. Yeah. Mr. Big calls him back, says, you don't hang up on me. You show up. You come here. I can help you out. You're in a jam. I am going to help you out. Pete does as he's told, but he's a little leery. He lingers outside the door smoking. He's constantly smoking. Michael, at that point, it's interesting that even though Pete is a degenerate gambler, every male that you see in this movie except for mr foster because he's on vacation 
is wearing a suit. This is suit time period. Yeah, even though he is, he is. He's a degenerate gambler. He's he's a low life. He's always going to be in a suit. That's the time people were wearing suits to ball games. Now you get people that just paint themselves and show up drunk. At least there was some dignity in being drunk back then. This is where one of the real hooks for this movie comes in, where it is super influential, is when he goes in, Mr. Big is wearing a mask, which would be unsettling if you were called to a meeting and the guy's wearing a mask and Pete at first is going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, the idea is everybody on this on this caper is going to wear a mask. That way you can't identify each other. That sounds familiar to a lot of people for a reason because Quentin Tarantino is a huge fan of this movie and he used that idea for Reservoir Dogs. First of all, Pete pulls a gun, and Mr. Big takes him down. And this is a theme. Pete gets slapped around a lot. A lot. And, and in fact, the three bad guys, him, Lee Van Cleef, Neville Brand, kind of get knocked around. Yeah. Neville Brand, not as much. But there's a, there's a lot of smacking around of these guys. And Pete, at first, is just, I'm not going to do this. Mr. Big says, you got a first-degree murder rap on you. You help me, I can get you out of this. Yeah. $300,000. You take part? $300,000. This is how little Mr. Big thinks of him. He takes Pete's gun, loaded, throws it back to him. Pete has a great line. I don't shove around so easy. <laughs> it's like, couldn't be farther from the truth. Exactly. Pete reminds me of a kick dog, where he's just been kicked down so much of his life that he is a nervous character to watch. And that scene where he gets slapped around, that scene is very surreal. You have a man in a mask that looks like a super villain or a superhero. And the close shots of Pete's face getting smacked down at a lower angle. Yeah. Like he's clearly the animal in the trap. He's got the, that, that really wandering eye. eye. It just makes him look defeated. Then he has Tony Romano, <laughs> who's Lee Van Cleef. And Neville Brand plays Boyd Kane, which I just think is a cool name. Mr. Big gets those two. He's got something on both of them. Tony's a third-time loser for right driving a big getaway car. Yeah. Boyd Kane killed a cop. They need to get out of a jam, and money will get them out. So he sort of has them. Boyd Kane, when you first see him, he's wearing sunglasses. Neville Brand makes that character look like a sociopath. That odd scene where he's just sitting with glasses, like staring up at you, Vanquish. I mean, like, I was scared of him right there. <laughs> yeah. And they, they each have a tick, they each have a thing. Yeah. Pete Harris smokes constantly. Yeah. Tony Romano's a real ladies' man. And that's one of the things Mr. Big says no ladies. Boyd Kane chews gum constantly. Yeah. And he does. He just sits there and stares at times. And you think, good Lord. Yeah. Just you unleash that person <laughs> in a room. So then they get to the, the heist, the caper, which is, you know, they pull off beautifully. They have a replica of the florist truck. So first Joe pulls up. He drops off the flowers he has to drop off, drives away. Then the second one, while he's doing that, he bumps into a lady who's totally rude. Reminds me of the woman in, uh, in They Live. Roddy Piper bumps into a lady. Excuse me. <laughs> Pretty interesting. So Joe goes and he leaves. Then the second car pulls up. They get out, beat up the guards, steal the money, take off. The guard comes running out, just wildly <laughs> shooting. shooting. I just, saw that. Just wildly <laughs> shooting at the street. Again, I don't know, maybe that was acceptable back then. The police are on the lookout for this florist truck. And because Joe bumped into the lady, she goes, yeah, that guy's a jerk. Yeah. And so she fingers him. The whole caper is really well thought out. They pull the car into a trailer. Tony drives away. Everything's cool. The cops are looking for a florist truck. They're dragging it for the florist truck and three people. There's a call that goes out for a 117. The police track down that florist truck. They pull over Joe and Joe's like, what's the big deal? And there's all these cops swimming him. They start pounding on him then when they pull him out of the car. There's a lot of manhandling of Joe. And they open up the back, and it's just flowers. They're like, where's the other guys? Where's the other guys? Yeah. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. So as they pull Joe in, who's now going to be the patsy, it flashes back to the back of the car. And Mr. Big is there with the three men, and they're all in masks. And it's very surreal. And Mr. Big doesn't want them to take their masks on. One of them wants to take off. He's like, no, listen, this is mask day on. This is cop proof, so we don't know each other. It's stool pigeon proof. Here's how we're going to do it. No one's going to get their money now. We're going to split it at a certain period. I have a ticket for you, and he rips off also a card, the top of each king card in a deck of cards. I have a ticket for you out of this country and this card. I will contact you for a location when we'll split the money when things have cooled down. And your top of this ripped off card is your pass 
to get back in and to get your money. Which we've seen something similar to that so many times. Yeah. Like, like growing up, like this was one of the first times, you know, whether it's a $20 bill. If you bring this half, I know it's you. And he has them jump out of the... the, the that, that's what I love. At a different points in time. <laughs> just they have no connection out of with the each movie. other. Well, but I like that it's the movie. You can't just stop. Yeah. You can't stop for a minute. You get out. And then we're going to drive five miles down the road. You get out. Back. Not to mention the fact, Jason... That you're just jumping out here. Isn't that somewhat suspicious? Like if if a police is driving by, there's a guy out in the middle of nowhere in a suit. In a suit. In a mask. Or, I don't want to, you know, I don't no. want to, I don't want to no, cut it, up every little thing. No, but it does, it, there's it, a it point there because it's labeled as a perfect caper. We learn later on that he did make a mistake. Boyd Kane and Pete yeah. Harris, they had done time together. Even though Mr. Big had spent all this time making sure these people don't know each other. Two of the people actually do know each other. But anyways. So Joe's getting the hard sell. I mean, this is a great scene where they're interrogating Joe. And they're basically saying, you did this, just admit it. There's a lot of brow beating. There's a harsh light on. It's very film noir with the shadows are sitting there. We find out Joe has a past. He got yes. pinched in some gambling, something or other. Yeah. He did a little time. Well, at one point, <laughs> Joe starts to say <laughs> something. He raises his hand like he's going to backhand him. We are introduced to Scott Andrews. And he works for the insurance company that's insuring the bank. And then Joe's boss, they get everybody in Joe's family there at one point. His boss is, listen, Joe, you're a good guy, but because of this... I, I work with a lot of conservative people. They don't want any <laughs> insinuation, so I'm going to have to fire you two. If you're so worried about the conservative people you deal with, you did hire an ex-con. Because yeah. he said he got this job through his parole officer. And he had been a soldier. He had won the Bronze Star Very and decorated. a Purple Heart. And he did. He had an industrial engineer degree that he did not finish. So it's a smart guy. And They're, Mr. Andrews is all about that. Why would you take a job that's not in your field? He's, and he comes off as very benevolent. He's a father figure type. And all these cops are just ready to be get out the brass knuckles. Just go old school. <laughs> exactly. And th- then there's the media, too, that's playing up on this. Where they're plastering Joe's picture all over the front page. Without a lot of evidence saying, like, this is the guy's responsible. Yeah. They keep throwing Joe back into his cell. In I'm fact, like, Officer McBride, who happened to be the cop who arrested him. He tells the DA, I guess, re- regarding Joe, we'll have his confession on your desk first thing tomorrow. Which means they're going to just try to beat a confession out of him. They kind of go through this, this little montage yeah. where they come back in. They let him rest a bit. Yeah. Then they come back in. Hey, we got to question you a little more. And by question, they quote unquote, beat. they're going to just punch him a bunch. But then what happens is they actually find the duplicate flower van in a trailer. And they're like, we're going to have to let Joe go. <laughs> my, my favorite part of that is when they do let him go, the DA's like, he literally says, ah, Joe, yeah. these, these things happen. Yeah. And, and Joe says, thanks for nothing. And he walks outside. He sees that his character is smeared. Once again, the newsprint is pointing like his face is on the front page of the okay. newspaper. It's interesting to me because when he sees that, he's still wearing the floral exactly. uniform. He's still he's masquerading like I can't let go. I don't have a job anymore, but he's like, I just like really, really like this this speed suit. And and it's I, like a, a jumper of And some I thought sort. like how many days did they keep him in that jail? Was it just a montage of every hour? Joe goes to a bar. He switches to a leather jacket finally. Oh, you know that he's changed. His life has come to an end. The only way to resolve this is he's going to fight his way out this. Find these guys. And that's a leather jacket. Yeah. It's a leather jacket You're going to be a hood again. You You have to go to a bar, Winkies. He orders coffee. You pointed out. He orders coffee. Goes to the bar and orders coffee. Sam (laughs) Malone. And his, his buddy Eddie is on the phone with a guy named Rick. And he's saying, you really need to help Joe out. Eddie says, like, come here tonight. We might have some information. The reason Eddie feels like he ha- he owes this debt to Joe is Joe saved his life in Iwo Jima. So you were like, really like Joe's Eddie's like a, a good a guy. Limp. Eddie's got a limp. I yeah. don't know if you noticed that. He's got a limp, so he got injured. They're war buddies. This guy named Rick, who's clearly associated with the Kansas City underworld. He's got the dark suit. He's got the striped tie, <laughs> the like diagonal striped tie, classic looking gangster type. Pete Harris might be a guy that's involved in this. He has fled to Tijuana. And then... Eddie gives Joe money. He says, yeah. Good luck, buddy. Yeah. And when he leaves, Rick looks at Eddie and says, That's the guy who saved you to Iwo Jima? Yeah. yeah. And he goes, I'd buy him. Yeah. Like, <laughs> in, implying Joe's good people. Joe's good he's, people. He's, a, he's the hero of this movie. Yes. We just sent him off to maybe kill somebody. Yeah, exactly. He's all right, yeah, though. You know. So then we get, we get old Tim, Mr. Big. And I'm going to keep calling him. So you call him Tim. His name is Tim Foster. 
He's yes. played by actor named Preston Foster. Do, what do we want to call him? We have to decide. Because on he's Mr. Big. We can't both. We can't call him different yeah. things. He's is Tim Foster, and he is Helen's dad, and he's retired captain of police. Should we go with Big? Big. Let's go with Mr. Big. Mr. Big. So Mr. Big, we find he's in a fisherman's garb. Looks like a retiree, and he's got a series of uh, telegrams. He's got a telegram to send to Pete Harris is the top one, and then there are a couple others, and it says Barados on the 19th. First of many sneaky situations. He does the sneaky... It always reminds me of Michael Palin or something doing a sneaky look. He walks over to the door and slips these telegrams through a slot in the door while he's looking around all sneakily. Then we get Joe, who's down in Tijuana. TJ, I believe people like to call it. And he's got a taxi guy. And the taxi guy's all helpful. He says, hey, if you're looking for a good time, I'll show you a good time. And Joe says, I like dice. And he goes, whoa, gambling's illegal. (laughs) But I happen to know some spots. So they go to different spots. And they just go. So it's a little montage of basically taxi guy (laughs) throwing dice. And Joe looking around. They finally find the spot. There's Pete throwing dice. Joe goes over and does something that is actually very disturbing. He goes over and grabs Pete's hand with the cigarette, pulls it up, and lights his cigarette with Pete's. That's weird. It is. <laughs> that is. I don't care what. what You'll remember a guy who does that to you. <laughs> yeah, I might actually punch him. So this this is off putting to Pete. And so they have this little back and forth where Joe's going to throw money to cover Pete and say, "Ah, he can't roll this. He can't roll this." And Jack Elam's all wild eyed. And finally, he gets his notice. He was told to leave at ten thirty. Joe follows. They have a little confrontation. Pete pulls a gun on him. Joe turns his back and walks away. Again, Pete is thought so little of that someone he, will turn their back on him. Even though he killed his boss. Apparently, he's up for first degree <laughs> so, murder. But so, it, like, I don't he know got, if I'd turn my got, back to a killer. <laughs> he got all the murder out of his system in that one murder, apparently. He follows Pete back, back to his place, knocks on Pete's door. Pete goes, hey... Who is it? He's like, oh, there's a guy downstairs. (laughs) And Pete opens the door for some reason and proceeds to get smacked around again by Joe, who reveals, hey, I was the guy driving the car. You guys, I'm the patsy. I'm the one you framed. Pete's gone. He just crumbles. He is smacked around and he goes, I can't tell you anything. So Joe smacks around some more, finds the mask, finds out what's up. And he says, I'm cutting myself in. Finds a telegram. He says, we're going here together. We're partners. I'm in. Well, at that time, too, I think it's where Pete reveals to Joe that there was another person involved that just wasn't those three people. Joe knows at the time now that there's someone else involved probably pulling the strings. He sees, finds the, the card, the Torn King, and he, he says, I don't know what that's, that is until we get there. They go to the airport. Tank 7. Yeah. Is, uh, Fill my glass it's up. It's flying. Yeah, it's it making me Making me feel like I'm flying a little bit. <laughs> it's great they're able to He's, find... A beer from Kansas City. Well, and I love the fact, again, this is something that's pretty, their distribution is pretty wide. I picked this up at a local beer store. So this is, and they've got, they've got a lot of good beers. They do a Belgian quad. They do, you know, your IPAs. They do a terrific wheat beer. Since 1989. Yeah. So these guys have been around a little while. What is that? About four decades? You're asking me to do math now. (laughs) 99, 2009. What's that, 30 years? A a little peek behind the curtain. We record more than one episode at a time. Sometimes we're in our second episode, maybe even a third episode, which means we've been drinking beer. Yes. So, Uh, no, but this this is such a good beer. It's fantastic. Has that peppery taste. I like the body is is, is light, so it makes it kind of a little scarily easy to drink. I'm enjoying it. I think these men, all that only really shows them smoking an immense amount of cigarettes an immense amount of cigarettes my lungs hurt after oh. watching this like the second or third time like man that's a lot of cigarette smoke i'll tell you if, if you're a former smoker it can be a tough watch and there's some great shots where that you're seeing the smoke in the shadows and yet and you see them drink coffee you don't see them doing a lot of and i think it, when you're on vacation in mexico i'd be boozing it up isn't that the point? Exactly. When you're on vacation. You just throw it at you. But you don't see a lot of hard alcohol or anything like this movie. You see a lot and just a lot of Which smoke. again sort of works against the whole noir thing because, yeah. you know, in film noir, you, you're always thinking about the guy smoking and getting a bourbon, yeah. having a whiskey. <laughs> when he goes to Winkies, the one bar in the movie, yeah, gets it, a coffee. Nobody's <laughs> drinking at Winkies. How are you staying open, pal? 
<laughs> so, so they're at the airport. No, we get, we get to the airport. It's a, it's a great little scene because they get to the airport. We're not really sure what's going on, but some American cops come in with some Mexican cops, and they've got what appears to be a hood with them, and one of the cops recognizes Pete, and the dude they have yells out, Cops! And Pete turns, reaches into his jacket, not sure why, because he doesn't have a gun, and the cops shoot him. Meanwhile, Joe's at the counter. He's buying a ticket for himself to fly to Barados. And Pete is laying on the ground saying the dough and trying to indicate something. And there's a great shot. It's got Joe's sort of a deep focus shot where Joe is in the foreground close to, this, to, the, to the screen. And in the background is a little group hovered around Pete as they're trying to say, what are you trying to say, Pete? What are you trying to say? And this Mexican cop is turning and looking over at Joe, senses something's going on, comes up, walks over, uses the phone, walks back. Joe's sweating it out. He goes to leave. Ticket guy goes, hey. Mr. Harris. Mr. Mr. Harris, you forgot your luggage tag. So he gets through. But now he realizes, I got to be Pete Harris. And that scene, it's the 50s. And you still don't see a lot of, when people get shot in this time period, you don't see blood. You don't see it. But Pete's death, he's sitting there. And they put something in his mouth where he's like blood is bubbling up and it's it's black and he's trying to get words out and you I, I feel it's a great piece of acting it, it is and Jack Elam you do kind of feel that you he feel for him dying. like you feel like this this, he, this guy's dying he didn't have a gun and they open fire for him to shoot him <laughs> just on the fact that like he's reaching inside his jacket there might be a gun also I don't know why he was reaching in his jacket though. Yeah, I don't know. Unless it was just a reflex. It's just a reflex. He was a criminal. He was a career criminal, four-time loser or something like that. I mean, he was someone that was not going to win. He's not going to survive this. So now we get to Barados. Barados. We're there at this resort. And they arrive. Tony Romano, Lee Van Cleef, is hitting on a local lovely. And she's trying to sell. Which is funny because Mr. Big specifically said, no ladies. Exactly. And this actress, I didn't write down her name. She is lovely. And she is trying to sell souvenirs all the time, perfume. She does an excellent job, apparently, according to her boss. Her boss is bragging how well she's with herself. I'm like, well, I can see why. And you see Mr. Big. Of course, they don't recognize him. He's there in his fisherman outfit. He's on. He's retired. He's, he's just a goofy, oh, yeah. shucks white guy. He's retired and likes fishing. Yeah. Also, Mr. Scott Andrew is talking to Mr. Big. You learn a couple things, Mr. Big. Well, it's hard to put together. My assumption is he's that a cop. he was a police captain and that he had a forced retirement two years ago. And he is still very angry about it because... It looks like he was thrown out of his job. He asked God, I was like, well, you know, let's not talk about that. What about this Southwest bank job? You know anything about it? He's like, we're still digging. And you learn at the time, too, that he's like, well, all the money, they have the serial numbers. So you'll never be able to spend this money without notifying it's from this robbery. Mr. Big says, I might be able to deliver this gang to you. Maybe we could work something out. He mentions Boyd Kane. And Tony yeah. Romano. He's like, does that ring a bell? And, and he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. It, it sure does. Yeah. Kind of interesting that the insurance guy is so up on crime. And he says, ah, we'll, we'll help each other out. That's when Joe was, arrives and he arrives with Helen Foster, Mr. Big's daughter. They had to met either at the connecting flight or something because they seem pretty chummy. Totally friendly. This is some more great sneak watching because when he goes in and signs in, Tony and Boyd just linger in the lobby of this place and they're just both sneak watching. Tony goes over, not sure why Joe signs Pete Harris. He's a method actor apparently. Because he knows there's a mask involved. He knows that a mask involved so maybe no one knows what Pete looked like. So So he's going to play that role. But Tony Romano goes and checks the ledger and sees he signed in as Pete Harris, and that sets off a bell. And Foster is also surprised to see his daughter. She's supposed to be studying for the bar exam, and she's really happy to see her dad. She's like, I flew down here to let you know I have good news, the reason I came down here. I've got the commissioner to reopen your case. Also on the plane... I met a guy. I kind of like him. His name is Pete Harris. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, I, I really, I have to interject here that who says a person's full name like that? Exactly. I, I met somebody who's delightful. His name's Pete Harris. And also, this is this would be off-putting if you were thinking Jack Elam. 
Mr. Oh, Big's like, oh my god, that guy, I don't want kids that, with, that, I don't want my grandchildren to have crooked eyes. Yeah, that oily, <laughs> scary, murdering guy who smokes too much, my daughter, that's her thing? Yeah. Is him? That would be pretty awful. It's interesting as a resort where you would see these, at least Tony Romano and Boyd Kane, standing out. They don't fit in with the res- rest of the Especially resort. at the card table. No. Because the one guy who just talks about vacation and, and fishing, fishing, he's having a good time. And Tony Romano's all business. Yeah. He's like, hey, you're going to put on? You're going to yeah. bet on that? What are you going to do? We're playing stud. Like, getting all gangster and, and intense on the guy. And the poor dude is just thinking, I'm trying to get drunk and play some cards. So I'm on go. vacation. Yeah. <laughs> so during that card game, Joe joins him. And he's dropping line. Well, first, when he shows up, Tim goes, whoa, that's not Pete Harris. Yeah. And I'm assuming Mr. Big, Tim Foster, recognized from all his five days of watching that he watched that delivery man show up. He had to recognize him. He had to know who he was. Joe, during the game, he just mentions like, I'm from Kansas City that looks around it, yeah. at everybody's face. More sneak looks yeah. from Tony going, mm? And then as he's reaching over at the end of the game to pay up his $10 he owes, he accidentally drops the ripped off card that he took from Pete Harris downtown. He's like, oops yeah. <laughs> and looks around again in everybody's face like did you see that and you see what i'm doing he even when he goes to pick it up he says good souvenir luck. of the biggest pot i ever sat in on yeah. good luck peace and it's really <laughs> worth noting that the entire time boyd kane is standing off by himself just looking menacingly at everything around him like any point this guy is just gonna blow the whole place up <laughs> and then joe does something strange he mentions like i'm probably gonna go for a walk but what he does he goes back to his room and he hides the mask and the ticket in his drawers as if expecting someone to break in and rummage through his stuff. And then he steps back outside and kind of lingers in the bush watching his bungalow. So, of course, Tony Romano takes that bait. Of course he does. And then he walks in. Joe belts on Tony. Takes away his gun, just beats him up, throws him down in the chair. At the end... Joe has Tony in his sights. He's like, hey, we're going to agree on this. We're going to work together. We both know we were we were part of this crew. And Tony seems to be accepting that. I mean, he, he's even okay that he punched him. He said, hey, man, yeah, yeah I would have done the same thing. Joe also sows some seeds of doubt about what's up with this Boyd Kane guy, yeah. which is a terrible move because it basically sends Tony to go confront Boyd and figure out what's going on, which is a bad, bad move. The next day. Pool day. And does that pool house look any place in Mexico? It looks like a Bel Air house. Oh, it, it's, it doesn't fit in. No, no, it does. And right before that happens, Tim gets a wire. says, Pete Harris has been killed. Able to identify him through fingerprints. <laughs> well done. That was quick, by the way. I don't know how they did it, but that's really, really quick. Their CSI team in 1950s was up to par. So the pool date, and they're, they're playing this cute little thing. And then Tony in a suit, he comes walking over on the fringes of the pool area and sort of does a, a little nod. And Joe goes, I left my smokes. Always about the smokes. So he gets up, drops his gun, which I got to tell you, if you have a robe on, I'm not a gun guy. That's what I thought. If you have, like, wouldn't you notice? For instance, if it was your phone, if you carried your phone around, you're in a robe by a pool. If you got up, wouldn't you notice that weight wasn't there? You're like, where was my swimming pistol? The swim party. So Southern California. You did go to swim parties (laughs) growing up. Like I said, having Tony investigate Boyd, bad play. Boyd and Tony rough Joe up. Two guys have to rough him up. He's going around roughing up whoever he wants. What's great is they said, you know, you're not Pete Harris. Boyd Kane says, I did a deuce with Pete Harris at Joliet. <laughs> so Mr. Big's plan is not foolproof. Like, that's a big mistake. Yeah, absolutely. I, again, I just have to point out, Neville Brand is a genuinely frightening dude. Yes. There's just some him just standing there chewing gum. He like, looks like a, he I, plays I, a sociopath. I, I, I got to get away from this person. He is super <laughs> scary. And then Helen, she's awesome. I really like Helen because she's smart. She doesn't take any crap. She's not some wilting flower. And she'll walk into a situation where there's a guy like Neville Brand. <laughs> and yeah. she's going to stay there. She's not going to go, oh, I need to run. So she walks in and says, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. And oh, by the way, Joe, you dropped your gun. Yeah, just. <laughs> and it's great because Lee Van Cleef sort of quick goes yeah. for like he's going to pull his. And Joe goes, oh, these guys just want to go for a nature walk. I, yeah. I carry the gun for snakes. <laughs> okay. And I, I like that line when 
clearly Tony Romano and Boyd have like, okay, our cards are played. We're going to have to leave this room. Otherwise, we're going to have to kill both these people. So they walk out, and Joe turns in this close shot. He turns to Tony Romano and says, like, hey, regarding your nosebleed, got a sure cure for a nosebleed. A cold knife in the middle of the back. Now, if he's not trying not to hint anything to Helen, like something nefarious going on, why would you say that? I know. But I remember the first time I saw this movie. In this scene, Lee Van Cleef, Tony starts using it. He says, hey, palsy. Yeah. Palsy. Palsy. Palsy became this part of my vocabulary. I just It just got in there. Just, hey, palsy. <laughs> Helen kind of has, just sort of breaks it down says, Joe, if you're just going to lie, don't say anything. I don't need to hear any nonsense. If you want to talk to me about something, cool. Don't I'm, lie to me. Yeah, I'm not going to sit here. I'm not a dummy. Which, again, I just love it. She's like a very strong female character. Absolutely. And she's not the femme fatale. There is no femme fatale in this movie. Again, that's another another case for, you know, if somebody wanted to say it's not really a film noir because there is no femme fatale. Yeah. And she's just a strong female character, which I love because she is awesome. But then we, we go to Mr. Big. This is where he's setting up the fix. He is driving his car back down to the marina. He hits a bump on this deserted road, and he looks in the back, and gasoline is spilling. Instead of getting out of his car and opening up the back, he climbs over the chairs, and he there's a giant thing of gas that's spilled. And clearly the top wasn't on, or it's not sealed. And he, he tightens it, and then he's trying to dry up the gasoline, which is just dangerous in itself. Yeah, a know. little bit. <laughs> and he opens up a hatch, and in the bottom you see the bags where the money... He goes down to his boat, this boat called, is it the Manana? The Manana. He gets down to his boat, he stacks the money up in a cupboard, locks this cupboard on his boat, and then he writes a note out about meeting each of the individuals involved in the heist that they're going to meet tomorrow morning at the boat and he addresses a letter to Pete to Tony and Boyd and he puts the rip top the, the card that was ripped on top of each how fast is mail there I mean I is he just to, handing these people I do have to point out the, the name of the boat is the manana yeah. which is tomorrow correct yeah so meet me tomorrow yeah. on the and tomorrow the, exactly <laughs> watch everybody get delivered their that hotel owner is living the best life yeah, he's, he's so happy throughout yeah. the movie it's yeah. like, I made note of that it's like he's all he just wants people to have a good time and I went I want to go stay at that resort so Joe, when he arrives, the lady that Tony's been flirting with and giving a bunch of money, she takes Joe to his room. She has this moment where he tips her and she's putting the money down her shirt and her cleavage. And she's looking at Joe and she says, but she says, hey, would you like a souvenir? And it's so suggestive. This great moment of showing you something without being graphic. She's just working Tony. But she's sort of attracted to Joe. And there's a different kind of souvenir, I think. Exactly. If, if Joe would like that. <laughs> the letters have been delivered. They know they're all going to meet tomorrow. Tony, Joe, and Boyd, they meet outside of the resort. And this time, Joe is able to get the upper hand on Tony. Oh, he catches them. They're so obvious. Because Joe's walking out and he goes, whoa, those guys, they're laying in wait. Exactly. Like, Their backs are turning. Like, he literally like, walks like, like right up to them. He's going to come around this path. <laughs> yeah. So he goes, I'm just going to go out that other door. <laughs> and he basically says, listen, I'm taking Pete's share no matter what. I thought that shot was really well done, except for the fact that he was able to sneak right up to them. Helen visits Joe. She informs him that her father was a former captain of police. And Joe is really like, listen... Mind your own business. I think he's trying to protect her. He doesn't want her to get involved. Tim is breaking down the plan with Scott. He's telling Scott Andrews, hey, you lay off in the water. I'll give you a signal. You can come in. Boom. Catch all these rascals. It's going to be beautiful. And Scott Andrews is going, yeah, this is going to be beautiful. And you'll get a reward. You know, you're doing a nice job. You, you know? the, the reward is 25%. Which has gone up because I think in the beginning they mentioned it was like 20%. Either 20 or 25% of 1.2 million that seems like a pretty good haul. So Big sits down with Helen, tries to, once again, you got to leave this guy alone. He's no good. She's not going to fall for it. She's her own woman. She's strong. Foster, on the boat, keeps that door ajar, the cupboard that he put the money in ajar, so anybody walking onto the boat will basically see that money stacked up. Tim pops up. Hey, you guys, you guys like fishing? Joe goes, yeah, I'd love to go fishing. <laughs> and Tony says, you might as well take all three of us. And Neville Brand doesn't say a whole lot. He just, I go, I don't know if I want you in my car. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, 
I can't emphasize how much that guy was just like oozed menace. Yes, just he did a great job. Just amazing. Like it's that classic acting with. He didn't have to say a word. No, he just like you said with the glasses, just sat there and just would look at something, and you'd just be squirming. I go, I don't, I don't want to be here. Well, he did something that I read a long time ago. Anthony Hopkins, when he was interviewed about playing Hannibal Lecter, and they said, "Why do you seem so menacing?" on screen and he's like well i read that if you're a sociopath you don't blink as much as a normal person oh, and that true. people when they view people they're expecting that you don't consciously see it but you're expecting that he goes so i really force my eyes to stay open and you watch neville brand's character his eyes are always wide open and so you get that creepy vibe and that's the that's how i made a connection it's like man he's just menacing and that's what i thought about Good call on that. Because, yeah, he just sit there slowly chewing gum. With his eyes wide. staring. Yeah. Just <laughs> staring, going, meh, I don't like anything here. So Tim says, we'll go take a drive. He takes them out, and there's this great shot where Joe and, and Mr. Big are in the front seat, and Boyd and Tony are in the back, back seat, and we get a shot from the back seat, and you see the reflection of Tony and Boyd in the windshield. And Tony's holding a gun, and it's just this specter, this behind, I'm hovering. It's a very kind of scary little shot. Death is rolling in this car right now. This is the end. This is a climax of the movie. Tim drops them off. He signals Scott, wink, wink. Joe's going on the boat. He's like, I'm going to get out of here. And they go, no, you're not. Yeah. And so they grab him. And then Joe goes, poop, and, and, and burns Tony's hand just pokes it with a cigarette, and Tony's, ow! ow. <laughs> there was something kind of funny about it. It was. That was a little funny moment. They're all smoking all the time. Like I'm like, oh, finally a cigarette's being well, used. Well, and these so tough can... guys, you know, yeah. like, you guys, you know, you're not that well, tough. Tony but, looks like a dandy. He wears a bow tie, and he's he a wears getaway a driver. Yes. And that's, a, that's sort of a tell. I mean, I mean, I'm not saying getaway drivers aren't tough. The getaway driver isn't the guy that's going he's not the heavy exactly he's in the car it's like you send in boyd everyone's gonna go yes i will give you my money so they get on then joe gets away he runs into the cabin and knocks the door which i mean just knowing boats a little bit like those aren't secure doors so it's i mean you got limited options at that point joe sees the loot sees the door open and goes woo closes the door boys break in they're going we're gonna kill you We'll make sure that that clown is gone. Again, these are kind of questionable moves because you would think you'd leave the heavy. These are bad choices. Yeah. I would leave Boyd. Just go over there and, and crack his neck. So Boyd goes out to see if Tim's gone. And Joe goes, hey, Tony, I've got a something I could show you. The money's in here. We could just split it two ways. And Tony is like really not a cool dude because... That he's doubt seen, is seated in his mind now. He sees the money and he goes, woo. Yeah. And then Boyd pops in and goes, hey, Tim's up, bang, bang, bang. Yeah. <laughs> and Tony kills him. Like, it's that it's that quick. And, of course, you know, Joe didn't think this through very well yeah. because he, Tony goes, why a two-way split? Yeah. What? I got a lot of spending habits. Exactly. I, I, I live a nice lifestyle. I wear a bow tie. I'm Lee Van Cleef, yo. And then Tim enters and he starts slipping up. He's talking about Pete. And then Joe points out, hey... Only Big would know that Pete was sent to TJ. Also, only a cop or ex-cop would know about the marked money. And Joe realizes what Tim really wants is that 25% because he's going to get three hundred grand. Yeah. It's a lot of money in 1952. All, the, all these men are going to be patsies. Alive or dead, they're the patsies. Exactly. So Joe doing this shoves Tony. <laughs> gets worked again. Yeah. These thugs just get worked over left and right. He shoves him at, at Tim. Then Tony shoots Tim. Tony and Joe in this great death match where yeah. he pushes yeah. the gun up under his yeah. chin, kills yeah. Tony. Tim's got the drop on Joe, but he doesn't kill him. Why? Why do you, why do you think he didn't kill him? I think he knows that he's going to die. Do you think he thinks Joe's a good guy and that he's good for his daughter? Because he has him right there. He yeah. could just shoot him. But he's shot. No, no. I, I'm, saying, I'm saying Tim, he's holding a gun. He's holding a gun on Joe. I think the former cop, the law-abiding citizen, good moral character citizen... That took back over. This vendetta that he felt he was wrong and he came up with this notorious plot. That deathbed realization. I, I think he realized, like, I'm not, I'm dying. I got a gut shot wound. Do I want to make things worse or do I want to make things easier? If he shot Joe and also died there, I think there'd be more looking into this case. And I think his daughter would find out, oh, my dad's not this clean cut guy. Because, because you know what? That fits in because then he doesn't shoot Joe. Joe goes over and Tim 
one of his dying wishes is, hey, don't tell Helen I was a no good crook. Joe, hey, please keep that a secret. He doesn't sort of says yes, but he kind of, you know, doesn't really say anything. And then Scott and all the people, they come in and and Tim goes, hey, um, you know what? This didn't go as I planned. And oh, by the way, it was Joe's tip that gave us this whole caper. And he deserves the reward. And you know what? That's the way it went. Right, Joe? And Joe just kind of nods and he goes, good, I can die happy now. Uh, everybody thinks I'm a good guy, yeah. which is sort of weird. He dies real quick. The ending. Scott Andrews is this just very odd <laughs> fatherly character to everybody. He sounds like something in the early movie short about you know how to be a good person. And he's telling Helen, Joe's a fine boy. The thing he got into a while back, not a big deal. He's good. He paid for that and then some. And your father said, tell Helen I love her. And Joe's just good people. You just stick with them. And I got to tell you, I mean, it's no, you said it's a happy ending. In some ways, it is a happy ending. But at the same time, is it? Because Joe, you figure going forward, he and Helen are together. He's going to get the reward. His, he has to live a little bit of a lie, you know? A little bit. Really? It's, but a, it's, it's a big it's, one. Her dad, but his it's not dad a li- ran a freaking scam that got a bunch of people murdered. But it's not a lie that, it's not his lie that he has to live with. It's not. It would be different if he was Mr. Big and he got away with it. It's basically just not telling Helen ever, hey, your dad was actually Mr. Big. He was the, the person behind it. It's, it's not, still a pretty big deal. I know, but I think it would be different if it was his lie that basically he had to keep secret this whole entire life. It's really her dad's lie, and he's just saying, I'm just never going to talk to her about yeah, but, her real dad. But at the same time, people are going to go around saying, you know, her dad was a hero. At this point which, in time, which in Joe, is, it just spreads out. Yeah. So in a way, it's I mean, I see the happy ending, but at the same time, I go, that's a, a gilded happy yeah. ending. But I think that when you measure it against other film noirs, their endings, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's probably a little happier. Absolutely, you know, boy gets girl at the end. That's always I mean, a, a happy ending. Yeah, I mean, I mean, <laughs> to call it a happy end and just to measure it by film noir is kind of a tough thing to do. Okay. Living with a lie your complete life, that's a fairly big lie. I that's, think that weighs on a lot of people. But I think some people are able, like, they're just able to compartmentalize that and say, that I'm just not going to deal with Maybe that. Joe's one of those people. He was a florist. Now he's going to have a nice wife who's a lawyer. He's going to bring home the bucks. He's going to go fishing. He's going to go fishing. Maybe, maybe he'll, he'll have, just stay down there. He yeah. said, you don't even have to be a lawyer. You can just hang with me. Maybe he'll finish that degree in industrial engineering now. <laughs> Absolutely not. He's got 300000 in 1952. <laughs> so do you recommend this movie? I do. I, I think that if you are looking at film noir, this is a great movie to go and watch. I think it's a very tight plot. It's a little, like it took me a while to figure out the machinations of Mr. Big, what he was doing and putting it all together. I thought it was a good mystery that way. It's structured well. It definitely has impact on today's movie makers. Quentin Tarantino, as we pointed out, he really liked the movie and he put some of the elements in Reservoir Dogs. Sadly, because of the what was the production company's name, it was the only film made by Edward Small's short-lived Associated Players and Producers. It fell into the public domain. You get to see some major character actors do a very good job. From Jack Elam to Lee Van Cleef to Neville Brandt early in their career. I think this is Lee Van Cleef, maybe his third movie or yeah. Um, I wanted to point out that I was looking, since this was a bank robbery movie, I had to look up something in $1.2 million in 1952. How could I gauge that? And so I did look up the top five bank robberies in U.S. history. And these dollars are all right-sized. The website I was looking at to 2016. But there was a case in 1950, and it's the, it's the fifth largest as of 2016. The Brinks Building in Boston, Massachusetts, which was at the time a $2.8 million robbery. And in 2016 dollars, like I said, this is the most recent date I could find, it was $27.7 million. So wow. big robbery and... The Brinks job. Yeah. There's actually a movie called The Brinks job. There you go. And then, of course, I had a dive into Kansas City mob history. We had a discussion about this because I never associated Kansas City with crime until this movie. if If you're into the mafia at all, Kansas City was so mobbed up. It was a huge deal. Big deal. I mean, even if you just watch Casino, Martin Scorsese's Casino, especially back in that day because so much trucking. That was a hub for trucking and trains. You weren't doing jack squat 
without that stuff. And if you were passing through there, because that was kind of the St. Louis is a gateway, but Kansas City was a gateway middle point of the country. The mob went right there and said, if we want everything to stop, everything stops. Nothing's going west, nothing's going east. And then the title itself, Kansas City Confidential, it did well. So after this, you saw in the 50s, leading up until now, you saw New York Confidential, Chicago Confidential, Hong Kong Confidential, a movie that we covered, High School <laughs> Confidential. And then in the 90s, you get LA Confidential. I yeah. know that they say that title dealt with a entertainment rag National Enquirer newspaper that was taking place at the time called Confidential. But still, I think, I, I think that it's tied to this. Yeah. So well worth it as a fan of cinema to go and see this movie. So Michael, this was your choice. Do you recommend this movie? Absolutely. I'm a huge fan of this movie. I saw it years and years ago. You'll see it on lists. It's not the top 10 in film noir, but see things that are off the beaten path sometimes because they can be hugely influential and you find them to be wildly entertaining. I just think it's great. I think the characters are cool. They're very distinct. There's a great little rhythm to the movie. I recommend this movie 100%. I think it's a cool movie. You should put it under your belt, if you're, especially if you're into film noir. And like you said, you see some character actors that people of a certain age grew up with in different roles. You go, this is their early thing. And you go, oh my gosh, there's Lee Van Cleef. You know, there's Jack Elam. What, what about Tank 7 Absolutely. from Boulevard? Uh, once again, thank you for pairing this with this movie. I think that having a beer from Kansas City while we're discussing Kansas City Confidential, that just added to the discussion. It's on the nose, but it's perfect. Oh, and it's, and perfect. It's, it's such a fantastic beer. It is. I mean, that, that floral, just as, as we've been sipping it here, I'm like falling in love with it all over again. Such a great beer. Very drinkable. It, it's just, it's to me, it's something you can just sit and drink. Or you can, like I said, pair it up with something. It goes with so many different things. Check them out. Check anything by them out. I think Boulevard is one of those like bigger craft breweries that I think is doing it right. I think that wraps up our show. Please like, subscribe, and comment where you listen. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. And check out our website. This is Beer and Beer Movies. I'm Jason. And I'm Michael.